Lou Little was the football coach at Georgetown University from 1924 to 1929. Now, before I read this, uh, this story, I didn't know that Georgetown knew how to play anything but basketball, but apparently they do have a football team, uh, or did in the 20s. And uh, on this team was a young man of average ability. Um, he very seldom got into the game. But the coach Little liked him a lot. The coach really was fond of him. He especially liked and appreciated the way that, that this young man would walk arm in arm across the campus of the university with his father. And one day, shortly um, before the, the big game with, uh, with Fordham University, the, the player's mother called and said that his father had suddenly died of a heart attack. And the player went home uh, with a heavy heart and three days later was back on campus and when he got back to campus, he went up to the coach and he said, Coach, will you let me start in the game against Fordham? And uh, he says, I really think that's what my father would have liked most. And the coach thought about it, hesitated for a second, and said, you know what, sure, I'll do that, but only for a play or two. And true to his word, Coach Little put the boy in the game, but he never took him out. For 60 action-packed minutes, that inspired young man ran the football like his head was on fire. He blocked like an All-American. And after the game, the coach went up to him and praised him and said, Son, you've never played ball like that before. What in the world has gotten into you? And the boy answered and he said, Remember how my father and I used to walk arm in arm across the campus? Well, he was blind, completely blind, and today was the first time he was ever able to see me play. And I hear that story, and I think, man, he had a desire, this, this young man had a desire to please someone, someone that was not visibly present, and that made all the difference for him. That's a heartwarming story or whatever, but I think the Apostle Paul in our text this morning looks a whole lot like that guy, but for eternal, spiritual, significant reasons. If you remember a couple weeks back, I know that's hard for some of us to do. We've, uh, we've had a few nights sleep and, and a lot of food in our bellies since then, but a couple weeks ago in our last study in the book of Acts, we saw Paul set his sights on Jerusalem. Though he knew that he'd been told by God and several different friends and ministry partners that this trip would bring suffering and affliction, Paul lived, Paul fought, Paul died with the conviction that he was doing it all for an audience of one, and that one was God. He served the risen Christ, and he didn't allow friends or ministry partners to sidetrack him, to, to cause him to be disobedient from following God completely, even if it meant difficulty or suffering. But we know that Paul was human. He's not perfect, He's not, he's not uh, infallible. He's not without sin. And, and in fact, many scholars see today's text as an example of where Paul uh, demonstrates failure, where he slipped up, where he sinned. And so let's see this morning what we can learn from a guy like Paul who's not perfect, who's not sinless, but who was willing to take risks, even controversial uh, accommodations perhaps to this Jewish culture for the sake of King Jesus. And so let's walk through our text. We'll make several observations. The first one is this. We see Paul's warm reception in Jerusalem. For this, we need to go back up to verse 17. Um, we'll start in verse 17. We know from the last two chapters that Paul has set his face toward Jerusalem. He's been making his way there. And we noted last time that Luke is, is really intentional to draw out some comparisons between Jesus and Paul. Namely, that they were both men on a mission which they knew would include or, or result in suffering, and it was in the city of Jerusalem. And so all these comparisons are there for us. 
Similarly, the, the, the town of Jerusalem is swelling with people, around 2 million people, because of the, the Jewish festival that's taking place. So look at verse 17 with me. It says, when we, uh, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when, the, when they heard it, they glorified God. After meeting the brothers here in the text, they, they, they meet uh, in this church in Jerusalem, meet uh, Paul and his missionary friends. And this is the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. If you remember, the, this is where the, the, the Holy Spirit uh, first birthed the church. And so this is a massive church. Some suggest even as many as 70 elders here um, leading this church in Jerusalem. And the leader of that group is, is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, James, even in this day, was already famous for his piety. Uh, Eusebius, the 4th century church historian, says that James's knees were like that of a camel because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer to God. That's the sort of reputation that James had. Let me hit uh, maybe pause here for a second and chase a rabbit, a little bit of a sidetrack for us. If you're here this morning and, uh, and you're skeptical, maybe you need, uh, you need evidence, maybe you're doubtful that this actually happened, you, you, you don't believe maybe that the resurrection actually took place, need, need a little bit more uh, evidence that Jesus is God, that he died for sins, that he rose from the dead, let me offer to you James. James as, as evidence number one. You have, and I've, said, I've shared this with us before, so if you've heard this, it may sound familiar to you, but if you go back to Mark chapter 3, where we, we studied through the book of Mark recently. You have the family of Jesus, his biological family, mother and brothers, and it says that in Mark chapter 3, they went out to seize Jesus because they thought he was out of his mind, was what the text said. That he was preaching that he was the Messiah. They thought he's crazy. And so James, in the text here in Mark chapter 3, literally thinks that his brother is insane and he needed to be constrained. He needed to go and they needed to bring him back, even if it meant under, uh, under seas, under control, being tied up. They needed to bring him back home because he's off his rocker. That's James in Mark chapter 3. Now church history will go on to tell us that that James, the same one, was stoned in 62 A.D., why? Because he would not stop preaching that Jesus, his brother, was God. So, now I, I just spent some time, and as many of you probably did as well, with my family. I have three sisters. And there is no way on God's green good planet that he's created, there is no way that I would ever say that any of my three sisters would be God. There's, there's no way. I, I know them. I know them well. They're not God. And yet, James, for between Mark chapter 3, when he thinks his brother's lost his mind, and A.D. 62, where he dies as a martyr for worshiping his brother, something has happened. How do you go from, that guy's crazy, we need to tie him up and bring him home, to stone me if you want to, that man is God. How do you, he saw a resurrection. He saw Jesus literally alive after he saw Jesus dead. That's the only way that you can explain this change in James. And now he's leading a church. He's leading the largest church with these other elders, these other men, to worship his half-brother. Let me offer up to you, James, if you need proof that Jesus is who he said he was, that he conquered the grave, that he rose from the dead, let me offer up John, uh, James to you as proof. He's worthy of our worship if he's worthy of James's worship. Now, back to our text. 
There are two things that Paul does when he meets up with, with James and these other elders. First, he gives them a testimony of the wonderful things that God's been doing among the Gentiles. You, you'll see this in a moment. You, you can just imagine, though, that, that, that as he gets there, and there, it's a warm reception, Luke says. He's telling them about the Ephesian riots, right? The social impact that the gospel had in a place like Ephesus. He's telling them of the, the power of the gospel in places like Athens and Corinth. He's telling them of the, the near-death encounter that he had with assassins as they chased him out of multiple cities, wanting to kill him. He probably tells them of poor Eutychus and the swan dive from the, from the building as he fell asleep during the sermon and the way that he was uh, miraculously brought back to life. And Paul just kept preaching. He's probably telling them of all these times, and it's a time of celebration, right, for all that God has done since he last saw them. The second thing, though, that he does is he presents to them a love offering. Now, it doesn't say that in the verses that we just read, but we know that this is one of the primary reasons that Paul's making his way to Jerusalem. He's been collecting a gift from all these Gentile churches that he's, um, that he's started, and he's bringing a love offering from them to the poor in the Jerusalem church that have been through a, a difficult time. Now, Luke doesn't mention this here, but one of, the, one of the primary reasons Paul's getting there and he's doing that is because he feared this sort of nationalistic um, rejection, this legalistic Christianity that would, would be growing in, in Jerusalem and them rejecting Jews who didn't follow in those cultural practices of the, of the Jews, the Gentiles that, that were not following in those same laws. But he hoped, he's been praying, he's been working for this end, that this love offering that he's been collecting would build. Not only would it support those believers, and that's, that's, a, that's a primary reason that he would collect that. But it's also a way to build unity. It's a, it's a way to build solidarity between this, these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians. These folks love you. See, they're collecting, they're giving of themselves for the poor here in Jerusalem. Well, as a result of these actions, verse 20, when they heard it, they glorified God. Everything's going well. What Paul's been praying for is actually happening. He's giving them a report of the mission. He's giving them this love offering. And they, they glorify God as a result of it. This is great. And so Paul's probably shocked when he finds out that there's a problem, which leads to our second observation in the text. We see the elders' worrisome proposition. Look at verse 20 So we continue in our text. Now, I don't mean to, to minimize or to suggest that their excitement here is not genuine, that their praise here that, that's taking place as they glorified God, that it's, that it's, that it's less than genuine. But it almost feels like when you're reading this passage, the elders are like, great, praise the Lord for all that God's been doing. Now, you might want to sit down for this next part. It just that quickly shifts gears. They're praising God one moment, and the next moment they're going, but Paul, we have this dilemma. And to see that, let's continue reading in verse 20. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. They have been told about you and that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So talking about shifting gears, they go from praising God to, hey, Paul, there's thousands of, of Christians, new Christians that are coming from the Jewish tradition, and they hear that you're not keeping up those practices. They actually hear that you're teaching Jews to forsake Moses and to not circumcise their children. And some believers in the Jerusalem church believe mistakenly that Paul was doing that, that he was off base in his teaching, that he was actually preaching uh, some errant gospel. And they propagated this, 
slanderous heresy, this gossip about Paul, they, they, uh, they, they continued to spread misinformation and lies and gossip. Whether intentional or unintentional, that's what had taken place. And the, and the elders are giving him a heads up here. that Hey, there, here's what's going on. There's thousands of folks here that believe that you're teaching this. We need to learn from this church. We must be careful about the words that come out of our mouths, the information that we pass on to other people, uh, and, and, and because it's, it can be harmful, it can be shattering to someone else. To illustrate this, uh, I read this Eastern uh, proverb. It goes like this. It sort of illustrates the damage, the harm that gossip can do in our, in our lives and in our church family. There was a, a woman who once repeated a, uh, a bit of gossip about someone else, about a neighbor. After a short time, the whole town knew the story. They'd all heard what this lady was saying about this other lady. They slandered this person, and the person found out and, and was deeply hurt, was saddened by the spread of this misinformation. And the lady that, that, that spread the rumor, she learned soon after that it was, it was completely untrue. What she had been saying was, was not the truth. And, and so she went to this wise old sage to find out how she could somehow fix it, somehow repair this damage, and after listening to her problem, the, the, the old sage said, you know, go to the market and buy a duck and, and have the duck killed. And on your way back home, take and, and, and pluck all the feathers out. Pluck it on your way back home and, and drop them along the path. I'm so surprised by this unusual advice. The, the lady did just that. She did what she was told. The next day, she was informed that the, uh, the sage wanted her to come back. And so she came back and reported to him exactly what she'd done, that she'd followed his instructions perfectly. And the sage said, now go and collect all those feathers and bring them back to me. The lady followed the, the same path, but uh, to, to her dismay, she, she couldn't find any of the feathers. The wind had blown them all away, and after searching all day long, she came back with only a couple of the feathers. And the wise old man said, see, it's easy to drop them, but impossible to bring them back. Likewise, it doesn't take much to spread a false rumor, but you can never completely undo the wrong and the harm that it causes. We must take, take this to heart, take this truth and, and understand it, church. Even just hearing and listening to misinformation and not shutting it down can continue, can propagate a lie or gossip or slander that can be incredibly harmful to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And on top of all of this misinformation about Paul that had been circulated, Paul already had the cards stacked against him. I mean, think about the context and what we've learned so far in the book of Acts. The mother church here in Jerusalem was slow to accept Gentiles into the faith. You think about the way that they responded when they heard Peter uh, testify of, of the Gentile Cornelius that came to faith in Christ. You hear about the way that they responded when the Samaritans believed. They were slow to hear. They were slow to believe that that could take place. They had the Jerusalem council, right? Where they didn't give freedom to the Gentile church. Instead, they, it seems that they accommodated to Jews, made allowances to, to continue in, in the Jewish traditions and customs. So Paul comes back into that context, and the Jerusalem church seems to be compromising. They seem to be prejudiced. They seem to be filled with lying or at least gossiping and, and possibly even this sinful accommodation to, to Jews to allow them to continue in the, in the law. And all of this led many in the church to reject Paul. And so when the elders make a suggestion in verses 23 through 24... This questionable suggestion is so it's predictable. It's so predictable that they would, they would say, hey, Paul, here's, here's our idea. Right? And here's, here's, as I said, point number two. This is, this, is that, this is that questionable, that worrisome proposition. You see it in verses 23 through 24. It says this. They, they, they say, hey, Paul, come over, come over and sit down and listen to this. Do what we tell you. 
We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but about you, you yourself also live in observance to the law. Anytime someone says, hey, uh, especially when it's for the sake of popular opinion or popularity, hey, come and do what we tell you to do. You might want to be alarmed. Immediately be on guard there. I'm not saying they're wrong, but you should at least be careful. And that's what happens here with Paul. They essentially want him to front the bill for these four men who are about to take a Nazarite vow. Now, if you don't know what a Nazarite vow is, that's simply a, a, a vow to abstain from meat, uh, a vow to abstain from wine, and to shave your head uh, for the purpose of this, this promise, this vow you're making. Essentially, Paul is going to have to submit to a seven-day purification and pay for, front the bill for three animal offerings for each person, pay for the, the cereal, the thing that they would eat instead of their normal diet, and pay for these drink offerings. Now, Paul was not against the Nazarite vow per se. We're not sure, but it seems that in chapter 18, he actually takes one himself, not at the, at the pressure of the Jerusalem church. And so it's not an unreasonable request. It's not an unthinkable thing until you dig deeper. There's a an implicit exchange of favor that's going on in these verses. And it, and it sort of goes like this. Paul, we accepted that love offering. We accepted your gift from the Gentile church, meaning we've identified with your mission to the Gentiles. Now we're going to need you to do this to openly identify with us, with the, the Jewish nation. We're going to need you to, to sort of do this so that it looks good. Sort of pacify these folks. They're not asking Paul to compromise the gospel. Let's be clear there. They're not asking Paul to compromise his mission to the Gentiles. We'll see that in verse 25. But they wanted to portray him as a more trusty Jew than he actually was. In other words, this is just plain old church politicking. Let's make everybody happy. Let's try to do something here that sort of appeases everyone. And Paul, we're going to need you to bend over backwards to do this. Now, we'll make some more application at the end, but let's continue through the text and see what unfolds. Third thing we see is Paul's submission to the elder's suggestion. Look at verse 26. I have to imagine this whole thing was, was frustrating to Paul, just knowing his personality, knowing his ministry to this point. But in verse 27, it says this, Then Paul took them in. The next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering would be presented for each one of them. So here's the question. As we wrestle with a text like this and what Paul's doing, was Paul sinning by doing this? Was Paul in error here? Some scholars will say no. Some will say yes. Let you have a, a little bit of, of both sides of that. New Testament scholar F.F. F. Bruce, respected conservative scholar, says no. He says this. When he, Paul, was, was wise in, in, in what he was doing here, whether Paul was wise in what he was doing here may well be doubted. But he cannot be fairly charged with a compromise of his own gospel principles. On the contrary, he was acting in accordance with his own stated policy in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is what 1 Corinthians 9 says. This will sound familiar to you. Paul says, For though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though I myself not being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, that's the Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. 
So F.F. Bruce says he's simply following his, his missionary plan, his policy here. Yet others make the case that what he was doing here at this command from the Jerusalem church was an error. They say, based on, on what Paul's already said, what he's already written in letters to the Galatians and the Romans, and especially about the Judaizing, right? Or the adding of law onto grace, right? This idea of, well, grace is fine. We're saved by Jesus, but you got to do these things, right? Paul responds to that. And Paul in Galatians actually says he confronted Peter face-to-face about it. So Paul says, I went to another apostle and told him he was dead wrong because he wouldn't eat with Gentiles. So in light of that... Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, this is what Paul says in Galatians. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ." And so in view of all that, some say Paul is walking in error here. In chapter 21, what he's doing here is just flat wrong. In that view, I mean, think about this. I'm trying to give you both sides of this thing. In that view, the great defender of Christian freedom, Paul himself, who wrote those words, is making a mockery of grace. The man who wrote, for freedom Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Paul's who said that. That very guy is the one that's walking back into bondage once again. I mean, and how horrible that the Apostle Paul would have come to this. I mean, think about this. He gave money for purification, verse 24 that we just read, to the very priestly system that called for the crucifixion of Jesus. In the very same temple where the veil had been torn in two when Jesus died, demonstrating that God had made a new way into his presence. And now Paul's giving money to those folks. How in the world? Well, which view is correct? Was Paul in error? Or was Paul simply doing ministry? I think, and just show my cards here for a second, church family. I think if he wasn't in error, he was dangerously close. This is where I'm at here. But here's the thing. We don't know his heart. We don't have him stating, unless you take Galatians and and, and apply that forward to what he's doing here. And so it's probably best we reserve judgment here for God and God alone. God knows his heart. God knows why he's doing what he's doing. But here's a better question for us as we apply a text like this today in our church and in our context here in North Carolina. Here's a better question for us. Why did Paul go along with these Jerusalem elders' advice, and what can we learn from it for our lives today? How can we benefit from Paul's example here? And the answer is to his credit and our conviction. The answer here is that he, he loved the Jewish nation. He loved these folks. He loved the lost. He so badly wanted them to hear and believe the gospel. He had a burden for his, his kinsmen, the Jewish people. Listen to Romans chapter 9. This is what Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 3, Paul says this. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow. This is what Paul says about his people. And unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul saying, I would be willing to be damned if it meant that these brethren of mine, these Jewish people could be saved. Now, we know that's not possible. Paul can't give his life in exchange for those folks. But he's saying, I'd be willing to. I would, be, I would wish that I could. 
Think about that. This is the same guy who was caught up into heaven and has a vision of what it looks like, such that words can't even speak, Paul says. The things that I saw in that vision of paradise, of the kingdom that is to come. He was able to see that, and still he says, I would gladly forfeit it if these people, if these Jews could profess faith in Christ. Paul's willing to make that kind of sacrifice for his kinsmen. Then doing a little religious song and dance here, Jumping through a few legalistic hoops was a very small price for for him to pay, whether right or wrong. What exemplary love Paul shows us here for the Jerusalem church, for these Jews that don't yet know Christ, people that he cared for. Paul desired solidarity between these Jews and the Gentile church. That's why he's been collecting this offering. And if there was any chance that his actions here could make that happen, it was something he would humble himself and do. What an example for us, church family. Do we care that much about the body of Christ here? That we, that we would humble ourselves and, and do something that maybe we wouldn't ever do for the unity of the body of Christ. And then if so, what application can we make from this text? So I'm going to give us four uh, real quick applications as we walk through this and think about our own lives and how this might apply to us, what we see going on here with Paul and the Jerusalem church and these elders in the Jerusalem church. The first one is this. When we're on spiritual mountaintops, We must be careful. We must beware of error and bad judgment. It's possible that we can be so on fire for Jesus, so excited about what he's doing in our lives or in our church, that we slip into error or make wrong decisions because we're human. And when things are going well, we easily lose our sense of dependence upon God. Well, things are going well, and I'm walking, walking faithfully, so that's why these things are happening, so I'll just continue doing what I'm doing, and we lose sight of our dependence upon God. We can become complacent. In our time with God, we can skip a few days of being in his word. We can skip a few days of communing and fellowship with him through prayer. And when that happens, we know that the evil one would love nothing more than to to convince us to believe a lie or a half-truth or to make some bad judgment, whether big or small. We must abide in Christ. Second application we can make here is we have to guard against being pressured into questionable actions by the sin of others. Now think about this, if the Jerusalem church, the church in Jerusalem would have defended Paul as it should have when these accusations started, when this gossip started, if these these believers in the Jerusalem church would have been discipling these new Christians as they should have, teaching them of grace and and how it frees them from the the law and the pressure of the yoke of of bondage, Paul calls it, if they would have been discipling and, and, and squashing this gossip, then Paul would have never been faced with this this question, the the pressure to submit to this legalistic decision. And here's the thing, church family. We live in a fallen world. Our sins and the sins of those around us sometimes make make it difficult to, to understand, to discern what's right and what's wrong. And we need to be gracious to our brothers and sisters in Christ when, when we think that they're making a wrong decision, when we think that they're running headlong into sin. We need to consider that that not only their actions, but their motivations. And allow them to speak to those motivations. Give benefit of the doubt. Brother, this didn't seem like this is the... Why would you you do this? And be quick to to defend in the congregation when they're being attacked or maligned, slandered, gossiped about. Number three. We need to understand the communal nature of sin. The spreading of misinformation by those in the Jerusalem church. The gossip and backbiting about Paul. It affected all sorts of believers. I mean, think about the, the far-reaching impact of that gossip, those, those things that they were saying about Paul. Imagine how it affected Cornelius, right? 
a new Christian, a new Gentile Christian, as he hears, he's a Gentile convert, he's heard already what the Jerusalem Council has determined, and now he catches wind that Paul's involved with these Jewish customs again? Can you imagine how that might shake the faith of someone? Think about these churches that Paul's planted all over uh, the, 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 the known world at that time in his two missionary journeys and how that could have affected these new believers in these areas. I've said it before and I'll say it again. My sin, our consequences. Your sin, our consequences. Sin never just affects us. Your sin affects us. My sin affects us. It affects everyone around us. Number four. Fourth point of application here. We need to have hearts that are so full of passion for the glory of God and for the the, the salvation of the lost that we're willing to take risks for them, for King Jesus, his glory, and for the lost. Now, I want to be careful here. What I'm not saying is that the ends justify the means. So you should just go live like a hellion Because you want to win people to Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. Don't go and run headlong into a sinful lifestyle because you have some desire for someone to come to know Jesus. But what I am saying is that so often my heart, church family, and I will guess that many of our hearts are are so so lack of uh, have a lack of passion or or are empathetic towards the lost, cold towards the glory of God, that we take no risks for King Jesus. That we're we're so far on the other end of the spectrum that we never even get up next to that, right? That what I'm doing here, I'm not sure it's the best decision, but I want that person to know King Jesus, and so I'm going to share the gospel with them. So we never suggest a plan for reaching our community because we don't want to like an idiot if it's a bad idea. Or we never lean in and give counsel to someone who's struggling in their marriage because we don't want to give errant advice. Or maybe I don't, I don't, I don't want to say the wrong thing, so I'm just not going to share the gospel because I may mess them up and say the wrong thing. Friends, we need to be risk takers when it comes to those things and let the Holy Spirit do the work. <laughs> through us and in the heart of that person. We need to risk, but that risk needs to flow from an all-consuming passion for God's glory, ultimately, and for the soul of the lost around us. That's what we see in Paul. I genuinely believe that's what we... I don't believe he's running back into Judaism. I think he's saying, hey, these, these, these folks need to hear Jesus. They need to believe upon Christ. And if he'd be willing to be damned for that, I'm thinking he's willing to jump through these hoops and shave a few dudes' heads. Number four, we see the mob's violent hostility. This is verses 27 through 36. And so we're moving in a section of the text from this unity and desire for solidarity between James and Paul, where they're they're coming to James and these elders are coming to him and say, hey, if you could do this, this would really be huge in helping our ministry with the Jews here. Paul's going, I don't get it. I'll do it. There's this desire for unity and, and, and solidarity. And we move into this picture of just hostility and lies and blame, and and even physical uh, torture. Let's continue as we read in verse 27. It says, When seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, that's Paul in the temple, they stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. And they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once shut, the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, 
Word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion, and he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains and inquired who, who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people, were, people followed crying away with him. Now, there's some intentional language there that is, again, meant to remind us of, a, of another phony trial and folks yelling away with him or crucify him. But as we read this, it, you sort of have to wonder, did James's plan backfire? Right? Like, instead of pacifying Jews and Jewish Christians, it seems to only have made them more furious. Like, they're, they're here now wanting to kill Paul after Paul's already jumped through the hoops. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think it's just a, oh, well, that didn't work out like we thought. Because if you remember, Paul's, he's not expecting a pain-free experience in Jerusalem. He already knew that affliction awaited him. He's been told that multiple times through the Holy Spirit. Agabus, is, you think about his prophecy that we saw two weeks ago, and it's completely fulfilled here. I mean, think about even down to the, the way that Paul is bound with, in verse 33, it says, two chains. Uh, identifying this, his hands and likely his feet, which is what Agabus said specifically. That his hands and feet would be bound. So Agabus' uh, prophecy is foretold here. Paul knew. Paul knew of the suffering that was to come, and he still submitted to James's plan, not because he was hoping that it could help him to avoid suffering, but because he was hoping that it would build some solidarity between the Jews and the Gentiles, Jewish Christians and Gentiles. He's already admitted he's prepared to suffer. He's already admitted he's willing to die. Not just rot in prison, but die for the name of Jesus. And so what do we learn here? I, I, think, we, I think we must see in Paul and make some application here that we make the right decision. We make the right decision in the sight of Christ and let things unfold as they will. We leave the results up to God. Obedience will involve hardship. Doing the right thing, doing the thing that's obedient before Christ is going to be tough. It's going to include suffering. And we shouldn't be surprised when hate or intimidation or false accusations come our way. Paul is slandered here. They don't even know the story. It says some said one thing, some said another thing. They can't even get their story straight. He's slandered here. Early Christians, you think about the, the history of the church. Early Christians, some of our first brothers and sisters in Christ, were accused of incest because they, they greeted one another with a holy kiss, and then they turned around and called each other brother and sister. So the world looks at that and goes, that's incest. I mean, they, they, were, they were called cannibals. Because they, they took communion and they said, this is the, the body and blood of our Lord. And they looked at that and said, that's cannibalism. I mean, I'm not making that up. That, that's in history. They, they were literally called those things. They were accused of atheism because they wouldn't worship the emperor. As everybody else was in their culture, they were called atheists. And none of those things were true. Today as well, you might be attacked. You might, be, you might be slandered for standing on a biblical view of, of marriage or sexuality. You might be labeled a bigot or, or, or hateful. You might be labeled uh, narrow-minded or, or chauvinistic for standing on, on any of those truths. But we must be committed to standing on truth and let the chips fall where they may. Let the culture around us condemn us. We stand uncondemned by the king of the universe. Let them say what they will. Let's be like Paul here and take a, take a stand on truth and regardless of where that takes us number five fifth scene that we see in our text and it's really the bulk of our text this morning but we're going to summarize through it 
Number five is this. We see Paul's honest and powerful defense before these folks. All right? and so you see they're carrying him literally through this mob because it's so violent. And as he gets there, he says, hey, can I just have a moment to speak to these folks that just literally almost beat me to death? I want to share the truth with them. So I'm going to summarize this section for the sake of time and also because we've seen this. This is Paul's conversion narrative. We've, we've read through that and studied through that in the book of Acts. We've also watched as Luke has summarized Paul's conversion for us. So we've seen it twice in Acts. So we're going to read this this morning. I encourage you to own your own. But, but Paul's given the opportunity to, to talk to, to address this mob. And his defense is both, both respectful and honest. It, it, it's an account of his conversion. Um, and and he's, he's wanting them to know that the reasons why he's chained up here, why he's about to go to prison or even die, it's unjust. So he speaks calmly. And here's the, here's the things that he's attempting to do. Here's his two goals. Number one, he wants the people to see um, that he's, he's not uh, disregarding his Jewish heritage. He just thinks, he believes, he knows the truth to be that Jesus is the fulfillment of that Jewish heritage. I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not left Moses. I'm just telling you who Moses was talking about. That's the first purpose. The second is he wanted them to know the facts of his conversion. This is how this came about. It's not just my own wild imagination. I didn't get a wild hair one day and wake up and start, start teaching this. Like I, I met Jesus. I had a life-transforming encounter with, with King Jesus, the Messiah, and you need to know about it. So let's see how he does this. Uh, I'm going to give you four parts of his testimony here in summary. And you could even, as, as application for us, you could even go as far as to say this is a model for how you could share the gospel today. You could share your story with someone uh, your family member, your, your co-worker, using this model, using the pattern that Paul uses here. Because if you think about your life, your testimony, right? From birth to death, if you think of it as a timeline, there are all sorts of little marks along that timeline. Successes, failures, accomplishments, things you've done right, things you've done wrong. But if you really break that timeline down, it really, it really falls under three, three, three categories, three sections. Life before Jesus, encountering Jesus, and then life after Jesus. If you're born again, then your life has those three phases, and we see this here in, in what Paul does. We see this pattern in Paul's life. So step number one, or phase number one in his defense, which is also his testimony, is his life before Jesus. Now this is verses 3 through 5, chapter 22, verses 3 through 5. We're not going to read that section, but Paul uh, quickly begins by identifying with this crowd. He reflects upon his former way of life. He was born a Jew in Tarsus. You'll see that there. He was raised in Jerusalem. Uh, he, was, he was educated. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, the most re, uh, respected of rabbis of his day. He was a strict Pharisee. His zeal for the Lord was such, his zeal for God was such, that he persecuted Christians, both men and women. He brought them over uh, to prisons and locked them up or had them executed because he wanted to destroy Christianity because he thought it was a threat against God, a heresy. That's how much he loved God. I'll round up these Christians and throw them in jail. And the high priest, here's the thing too, the high priest and the council of elders there, they would be able to confirm that story. They would have known that that was the truth, that he traveled to Damascus to round up Christians. And so Paul's using, the, this is my life before Jesus. This is what I was doing. This is how my life was being lived. So as we think of applying that church family, as you share your story, Reflect on your past. Reflect on your sufferings. Reflect on your loneliness, the brokenness you felt. Because I can guarantee if you're speaking to a lost person, that's where they still are. They're still in that brokenness. They're still in that lostness. They're still in that loneliness. And allow your sin to be a spotlight on Jesus' goodness. Now, we need to, to, to offer this maybe as a, 
as a, as a helpful correction. We don't do that. We don't share our life before Jesus so that we look good, so that we inflate our pride, so that we glorify sin. I want to tell you how bad I was, right? We don't do it for those reasons. We, we, we share that. We, we're honest about those things so that Jesus looks good, so that we get to this next part, the step number two, where you encounter Jesus and all of that junk's gone, right? So encountering Jesus. This is the second part of Paul's story. It's verses 6 through 11, if you're tracking along with me in the text. In the midst of that life Paul was living, hating Christianity, destroying the name of Christ, or attempting to, Paul met the living Christ, and it changed everything. Changed everything. You see in the text, verse 6, the, the, the recount of it is, is that uh, Paul specifically mentions the, the light was at noon, which is, is showing us that he's implying here the light from Jesus was brighter than the sun at its strongest time. When the sun is highest in the sky and its brightest time, Jesus' light, the light I was blinded with, was greater than that. And he falls to the ground. He hears Jesus speaking to him. He hears Jesus saying, I'm the one you're persecuting. He encounters the risen Christ. He's careful here to specify that the Jesus speaking to him was the Jesus of Nazareth. It's not just any Jesus. You need to know it's this Jesus. He wanted to make sure that was clear. And here's the miracle of mercy, the greatness of grace. Jesus didn't execute him, an enemy of God, on the road to Damascus. Though he could have. Though he would have been completely just in, 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 in immediately letting the wrath of God fall on him on that Damascus road and destroying him eternally. In that moment, he didn't do that. Jesus instead turned a terrorist into an evangelist. That's what he's saying. I was going to destroy Christians and I became one. That's amazing grace. That's the miracle of mercy. Instead of being consumed by the wrath of God, he was commissioned as God's servant. And so in telling your story, make sure you don't rush past this. This is the most important thing. As you get to share, man, this is what I was like before. This is what my life has been like past uh, that encounter or after that encounter with Jesus. Don't miss this. Don't rush past the part where you can tell your audience, the person you're having the conversation with, this is how you too can meet the living God, meet Jesus Christ and have a relationship with him through faith and repentance. Make sure the person you're talking to hears that. That's what he's doing here. This is what my life looked like. This is what it looked like for me to encounter Jesus and then submit to him, to bow my life to his lordship. The third part, third part of his encounter, and this is our last one, his life after encountering Jesus. This is verses 12 through 21 of Paul's story. Paul describes Ananias, the one who uh, discipled him, who had led him back and comforted him and took care of him in his blindness. He talks about even Ananias' respect for the Jewish heritage. Again, he's building bridges to the culture he's talking to, to the folks he's talking to. He describes his baptism and the role that that played in his new life with Jesus. Paul describes his commission that Jesus had set him on a mission from that day forward, and he knew what it was going to entail, and he, and he went. He was obedient. Paul gave God, God gave Paul a, a vision to carry out this, this gospel to Jews, but not just Jews, to also the Gentiles. That He gave him a mission to preach the news of Jesus to folks in places where they've never heard the name Jesus, to Gentiles. And it's that word, it's that idea, Gentile, that sets this mob on fire. It triggers this mob of people, and they'll hear no more. And we'll get to that part of our text next week. We see the response of this crowd as they just, they, they're inflamed. They're furious. This idea of, of these Gentiles becoming followers of Yahweh. But here's the deal, church family. As we learn from this example in Paul, as we look at Paul's uh, defense here, his testimony, his story, as we make application of this text, here's the thing. He had, Paul had, the best of religious educations, Right? He had the theological training. He could have debated the scriptures with them. 
He had the street cred, right? World traveler. He's been to all these places and watched all of these debates unfold. He had debates with philosophers at Mars Hill. He had the street cred to do that. But instead, what did he do? He shared his story. He shared his testimony. And friend, you can do the same thing. You can do that exact same thing. Unlike Paul, you may not have the theological training. You may not have been to school and have the answers to these tough theological questions, the, the philosophical answers for how the world works. You may not have all that, but you know what you have? You have your story. You have your account of how Jesus came and changed you from an enemy of God, a sinner, someone running away from God, to someone who is now submitted to King Jesus above all else. You have your story, and no one can dispute that. No one can argue with you about that. Your testimony of how Jesus changed your life. You're an expert in that story. You know it better than anybody else. You can share it better than anybody else. Because it's your story. It's your encounter with King Jesus and how he changed your life. Let's be faithful as Paul here to share that story. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the example of, of Paul here. That God, though he was a sinful dude and he messed up just like all of us do, his boldness here to proclaim the mercies of Jesus, the grace of God, was in the face of of persecution and suffering. And at all costs, he said, it's worth it. God, I pray that you would give us that sort of resolve and boldness and courage. That by your Holy Spirit, even now as we pray together and we respond to this text, we would set our resolve to be faithful to an audience of one. No matter what folks around us say, no matter the, the suffering or affliction that may come, the slander or the name-calling that may, we may get as a result of it, God, I pray that we'd be faithful, be found faithful, as Paul was here with these folks in giving this defense. And God, I pray if there's one here today that doesn't have a relationship with King Jesus, they've never repented of sins and followed after Christ, seeing Jesus's Death and resurrection is the greatest news in all the world that today would be the day of salvation. That today they would see an empty tomb and a king upon a cross in their place and it would grip their heart and mind in a way that it would, it would never be the same. God, lead us to repentance. Lead us to faithful obedience. I pray that for every person in this room. King Jesus, you're worthy. You're worthy of our lives. You're worthy of our, of our mouths being open to share our story, the gospel of King Jesus. Help us to set our resolve to do that today by the power of your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.